Well, good morning to all of you. I want to uh, tell, you that, tell you that I'm glad to be here and uh, get one thing out of the way early. Um, so we had this wonderful friend in Scotland years ago named Robert Sinclair, and the church in Alabama that I used to pastor, we would go to the eastern part of the Czech Republic every year to um, a little town called Zlin, Z-L-I-N, and we would assist the Zlin Reformed Church in doing an English camp, which was their major outreach of the year, because uh, over there people want to learn English, and so they would get non-Christians as well as Christians to come to this English camp, and we would teach them English from the Bible. It was a great opportunity uh, and outreach. So I told my friend Robert Sinclair, we're going to the eastern part of the Czech Republic. Now, Robert Sinclair is a Scot, you know, it speaks with a little bit different brogue than all of us. And so he, I told him we were going to do that, and he started laughing. And I said, Robert, why are you laughing? He said, because you don't speak English. And I said, yes, I do. And he said, no, you don't. He said, there are three languages. There's English, and there's American, and there's Southern. And you speak Southern. And I said, oh, I didn't know that. I guess I'm trilingual. And he said, well, maybe you are. So uh, I hope you can understand me uh, through a mask and, and, an, uh, and an accent. And uh, so um, before we read the scriptures, um, I want to kind of set this up. Um, I'm here be, because I know that EC has announced his retirement next year. And uh, this is a sermon that I've preached uh, in the, the church in Alabama uh, after I had announced my retirement there. And if there's a hope that, uh, that it will help you, as I think it helped the church in Alabama. So let me begin this way in setting it up. Um, it's not uncommon that when a husband dies after many years of, of marriage... And then after many years after his death, it's not uncommon that his widow is uninterested in remarriage. I get that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. There are many good reasons why a woman uh, might not want to get married again or reconsider remarriage. The Apostle Paul mentions some of them in uh, the Bible. Uh, it's certainly not required by a long shot. Um, but there's one really bad reason that a woman in that situation would say, I shouldn't get remarried. And that is, if I got remarried, I would be unfaithful to my husband if I married again. That's not true. Uh, the marriage covenant is, till death do us part, or for as long as you both shall live. It's not unfaithfulness to a deceased spouse to marry again. Similarly, okay, similarly, it is not unfaithfulness on your part to a former pastor to embrace a new pastor when he arrives. And this text tells us why. And I think it's very pertinent to your situation. Uh, and I'm praying that God will use it to help you through this transition that you all face. Let's pray together and ask for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit as we look at this text. Father God, uh, show us um, 
the truth you have for us today and transform us into your image. And Lord, open us to your word and use me, a crooked stick, to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a typo in your bulletin, and I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, not 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And um, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 10, 11, 12, and 13, and then skip to chapter 3. The Apostle Paul went into one of his digression uh, modes and came back to the topic in chapter 3. But I want to take it up in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 1 at verse 10. This is the Word of God. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? And skip please to chapter 3 at verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is, taught, it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again... The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade. This is God's word. It will not fade. It will abide forever and forever. Shortly after I was ordained in June of 1976, I noticed that some people, some of the time, seemed to think of ministers in different ways and often unhelpful and unbiblical ways. Let me give you three or four instances of that, please. People who believe in the priesthood of all believers regularly pass over others who could pray at family and church events in favor of a pastor who is present. It is as if people believe that ministers have some inside track or more direct route or access to God. Many of you have been in situations like that. I had a neighbor in Alabama, lived across the street, I would say, Bill, we need to pray for rain. He said, you've got our inside track on that one, Pastor. Do I? Uh, Does it take any less of the mediation of Christ for me to pray than for another Christian to pray? You see, I think not. And we have that and we see that. Um, Associate pastor at my church uh, uh, in Alabama came to me one time. He said, well, we just had the family reunion. I was the only one that could pray the whole time, you know. Because he was a minister. Uh, But we believe in the priesthood of all believers. Sometimes we treat ordination as an instrument of entire sanctification. We ordained a new uh, minister, a new teaching elder in the church in in Alabama once. Uh, He'd been a layman and went to seminary while he was working and uh, got ordained and got into ministry uh, later in his life. And his wife told me, Uh, When he was ordained, or after he was ordained, she said, you know, I thought that when he was ordained, he would stop doing certain things. (laughs) And I I said, we didn't wave a wand over him, you know. We just ordained him. Uh, We didn't change him at root. I could go on with stories like this for a while. Um, There are ways that we're not to think of ministers, and, and sad to say, they're very frequent. Well, then how should we think of ministers? Well, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1 says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. They were not thinking of their ministers in Corinth as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And they were not, the the Corinthians are not alone in that thinking. It happens with much more frequency than we would care to admit. Let me say a little bit about the situation the church at Corinth faced, and and then I'll talk about the solution uh, that Paul offered to them. Uh, 
Um, Paul had planted the church at Corinth on his second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18 after you nap this afternoon, okay? And then if you read on into Acts 19, you'll find that after Paul left from the church at Corinth, Apollos came and ministered in that church. And if you read between the lines in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you will find that after Apollos left, other people came in to the church at Corinth, and they opposed the ministry of the Apostle Paul, said that Paul was not the real deal and could not be trusted. So they had had multiple ministers serve this church in a relatively short, short period of time. Um, and, and that sort of multiple ministry uh, happens in churches uh, in an ongoing way. Uh, it's happening now at Evergreen Beaverton, where Nathan Lewis was there for a long time, but then left, and, and now uh, Adam Parker's there. It happened at Faith Tacoma, where Rob uh, Rayburn was, and now there's a new man there. It happened at Faith Birmingham, where I was, and it's going to happen here. So EC's been here 12 years, and he's announced his retirement, and he'll leave, and someone else will come. It's the same type of thing that is happening in the church at Corinth, okay? Now, Paul appeals to them. If you go back to chapter 1 at verse 10, Paul appeals to them in a way that is, in my view, very revealing. And as he often does, he gives a negative and a positive. His negative is, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you agree and there be no divisions. No divisions in your church. And especially, he's talking about, as we see, as we look at this, he's talking about no divisions based on allegiance to different ministers that have been in the church. One says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. That's Peter. And, and Paul is saying, that's rubbish. That's absolute rubbish. There should be no divisions in your church based on allegiance to a particular pastor. He more positively says that, that they should uh, uh, be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. He says that you all agree. Now in this verse, the word judgment means uh, not final judgment or judgment of people as evil, but it means your views, your intentions, your resolve, your decisions. And he's talking in this context about those who have ministered to them, and he wants them to get on the same page and stay on the same page in regard to the servants that have served them. So that's what we get out of that appeal in verse 10. And then in 11 and 12, there's this report of Chloe's people. We don't know who Chloe was. We assume she or he will be in, uh, in heaven. We can ask someday, maybe. Uh, and it gives the background uh, of Paul's appeal. And Chloe's people say there's been quarreling in the church. And now the word quarreling means strife or selfish and rivalry or fighting or discord or contention. Imagine a church having those things. Imagine the church not having those things, right? So, one says, I'll follow Paul. Another says, I'll follow Apollos. One says, i follow Cephas. One says, i follow Christ. What do we got? You got a party spirit. 
you got a party spirit. Uh, if we were talking politically, we'd say Democrats and Republicans, but here it's Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Christ. They're personality cults. They have heroes other than the hero, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is called the hero, uh, the hero or the champion of our salvation in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. And they've got heroes that they shouldn't have as heroes. You know what a hero is. When King David fought a man named Goliath, they were the champion or hero of their group. And one champion fought another champion, and David whooped up on, on, on Goliath, and, and he was the champion of their salvation on that day, just as Jesus, in Hebrews 10, 2 verse 10, is called the champion of our salvation. The problem is, these people have got their eyes off Jesus as their hero. So then in verse 13, look at 13 of chapter 1. And 13, verse 13 is a little perplexing. Because he immediately shifts to this, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, what does all that mean? Why does he shift to that? And, and if, you're, if you're not careful, you can miss it. What he's saying is this. Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, guys, what does the gospel say to this? What does the gospel tell you about what's going on in your church? How does the gospel speak to this? Is Christ divided? Is, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Obvious answer to all those questions is no. What he's saying is, to whom were you united by faith at baptism? So you were baptized, and I can move, right? Because this thing records, so... So at baptism, baptism, we teach that people are united to Christ by baptism. Were you united to Paul? Were you united to Apollos? Were you united to Cephas? No! You were united to Christ. You were united to Christ. You weren't united to me. Who made promises of salvation to you when you were baptized? Was it Paul or Apollos, Cephas? The unity of the Savior should result in the unity of the church. And so their focus is wrong. They have forgotten important and fundamental things. And so Paul then goes into a period in chapter 3 that I would call his assessment of them, um, and, and particularly in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, he makes an assessment of them, and he calls them unspiritual. He calls them fleshly. He calls them worldly. Uh, they're thinking and behaving in a worldly or merely human way. He's not saying that they're non-Christians. He's not saying that. But he says they're thinking and acting like they're infants in Christ. I think if uh, one of us was writing this today, he would say, you guys are acting like rookies. You're like rookies. You should be further down the road than this. But you're acting like rookies. You're acting like the world... Uh, and fleshly and that kind of thing. Uh, the support of that, look in verse 3. He says, look, for there's jealousy and there's strife among you. Jealousy. What does he mean there? I think there were people in the church at Corinth that were saying, look, it's about my man, Paul, Apollos, Cephas. It's about my agenda, 
It's about my desires and not yours, and I'll fight you about it. I think that was what was going on in Corinth. You say, that's pretty ugly. It really is. <laughs> it really is ugly in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think that's what's going on. So, Paul then proposes a solution, and he gives them his solution, is, and this is particularly Pauline, uh, like Paul, uh, he offers good theology, <laughs> good ecclesiology, good doctrine of the church, and he says in so many words now, you should view your church servants biblically. Uh, you're not viewing your church servants big, biblically, but you should, and let me tell you what that looks like, okay? So, he says, first of all, see us as servants. Look in 3.5. What then is Paul? What is, what is uh, Apollos? Servants through whom you believed. In chapter 4, verse 1, this is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, Paul uses a different Greek word in each of those verses for the word servant, but I don't think it's, uh, it, it, there's a lot to be drawn from that. I think you can overanalyze things sometime. But notice he says, view us as servants of Christ. I think it's easy for a minister to see himself, first of all, as a servant of the church. A minister is a servant of the church but must always, in my opinion, and I think the Scripture's opinion, view himself as a servant of Christ first. Because he cannot lead and be the pastor you need unless he sees himself first of all, in the first instance, as a servant of Christ. Why is a pastor a servant of Christ? Because of his creation in God's image, because of his redemption by Christ, but preeminently, because of his call. A servant, you know, is someone that's devoted to the agenda of another. Some of you probably, in the, in the church at Alabama, we had a cult in that church, and it was the Downton Abbey cult. Did you have the Downton Abbey cult here in Newburgh? There were people that, you know, almost religiously watched Downton Abbey. On, it came on on Sunday night there. I don't know when it came on here on PBS, and, and everybody had to watch Downton Abbey. And if you watch Downton Abbey and the people that live downstairs, one of the phrases they would use to time to time that one might ask to another, how long have you been in service? How long have you been in service? Maybe you watched Upstairs, Downstairs years ago. Same thing. How long have you been in service? How long have you been serving another? How long have you died to your agenda to live for the other agenda? How should you view us? Well, view us, first of all, as servants of Christ. And then he goes on in chapter 3, verse 5. Servants through whom you believed. He said, look, we're servants through whom your faith began and grew. Yes, Paul would say, do you owe something to me? Yes, I planted the church there. Do you owe something to Apollos? He followed me in the next chapter of Acts. Yes, you owe something to Apollos. Sure, no doubt about it. You should be deeply connected to me and to Apollos and to others. But you do not owe us ultimate things. 
That's what he would say. Paul would get out of the way quickly and push Jesus to the forefront, which is exactly what he's doing in this passage. View us as servants of Christ, servants through whom your faith began and grew. In verse 6, he says, 5 and 6, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Right? You see, the fruit is assigned. And and because the fruit is assigned by God, because the results come ultimately from God, He is the one to whom you are to be connected and committed. Um, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Um, You can't cause growth. Uh, I called, uh, there was a man in our church in Alabama that worked down at the medical center downtown and and dealt in things that I couldn't even pronounce, much less understand. You know the type of person I'm talking about. Uh, He wasn't a medical doctor. He was a Ph.D. that did some... I really don't know what the guy did, but he's smart. You know what I mean? Did all that kind of biological science. And when I was preparing this sermon the first time, I called him up. His name was Steve. I said, Steve, let me ask you a question. I think I know the answer to this, but I want to be sure before I make an idiot of myself in in the pulpit again. I said, you don't understand what causes growth, do you? I'm talking about the biological realm. You don't understand what causes growth. He said, that's exactly right, Alan. He said, look, we can tell you that if you put this and this and this and this together, it will grow. He said, we can tell you the parameters that have to exist, the factors that have to be there, but it, you know, it ultimately, why it grows when you put those things all together, see, we don't understand that. I said, good, Steve, that's perfect. I want to use that in a sermon, you know. And, and that's what I'm doing here. You see, we don't understand growth. You say, well, my kids grow. Yeah, but why do they grow? Well, I feed them. Yeah, but that doesn't answer. Some feed, kids are fed. They don't grow. And so we go, you know, you don't understand growth. And you don't, we don't understand Christian growth. Because the wind blows where it will. Right? And some people grow, and some people don't seem to grow, and some people grow at a faster rate, and we don't understand that. Paul said, I didn't cause your growth. I didn't cause your faith. God did that. Yeah, you should be thankful for me and my ministry and Apollos and his ministry and E.C. and his ministry. But, but we don't cause growth. God God's causes growth. Nobody else can cause growth. View us as servants of Christ, servants through whom your faith began and grew, servants assigned fruit by God, servants whose judge work will be judged by fire. Look at verses 10 and following. I have to be very brief here, and there's a lot more here. I'm leaving a lot on the table, but it's a great passage. Um, In verse 10, according to to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Now there he's talking about the people that at the end of 2 Corinthians, he calls the super apostles. And if you, you have to read the whole two books to really get that picture, but there were some people that Paul referred to as super apostles that were saying Paul was not the real deal, Paul shouldn't be followed, Paul shouldn't be trusted. And he has those, I think, in mind when he says this at this juncture. And some else are building on it. Let one, in verse uh, middle of verse uh, 10, let 
each one take care how he builds upon that foundation. No one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each work will become manifest for the day, the final day, the judgment day, will disclose it. So what's the apostle saying? He's saying, look, you can build a church with gold and silver and precious stones. And you can build a church, put it in quotes, with wood, hay, and straw. And then he says, now let's put the fire to it, the fires of final judgment, and see what survives. And he's saying, obviously, right? You better be careful how you build. You don't want to spin your wheels. You don't want to waste your energy. You don't, you don't want to build that which is not truly the church the Lord Jesus Christ wants to be built. And so... He's saying, look, view us as servants whose work will be judged by fire. Verse 21, I'm skipping around, uh, I know that, uh, but it's got to be. Verse 21, so let no one boast in men. We are servants in whom you should not boast. The last verse of chapter 1 says, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Verse 29 of chapter 1, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We all boast. We are all made to boast. We're all made to worship. We we love heroes. We love to exalt people. The problem is we tend to exalt the wrong people. (laughs) The person we exalt the most is who? Uh, Jesus Christ. And and we, we get that mistaken. But He says, look, don't boast in me. Don't don't boast in Apollos. Don't boast in those other guys. Boast in the Lord. Don't boast in me. Then verse 7, he says, first, okay, see us as servants. And I gave you a lot of things about what kind of servants. And then he says in verse 7, there's going to be some semi-humor in this when I apply it, but Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. See us as nothing when compared to God. See us as nothing. So you can tell EC, I came down here and told, told you, now look at EC as nothing, okay? We'll get some funny out of this, right? Let me ask you, I said to the congregation in Alabama after I'd been there 30 years, I was retiring, I said, look, I've got this much invested here. What does Jesus have invested here? Infinitely more. He's got the blood of his only son invested here. He bled out his only boy for you and me. I'm a nothing compared to Jesus Christ. I'm a nothing. Apollos is a nothing. The super apostles are nothing compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the problem we have is we have such a low view of Jesus. See us as nothing. We only plant water. We can't cause growth. Then verse 8, he says, see us as one. He who plants and he whose waters are one. We're doing one work, building the church, gathering and growing the saints. We have one mission, the kingdom of God. We have one goal, the glory of God. And we should be on one team to accomplish this work and this mission, this goal. Now listen carefully. What allows a church 
to withstand change. You're going to go through change. What allows a church to withstand change? Common purpose, common vision, common mission are what enable a church to endure change. Of leaders and other things. Let me illustrate that. So, what is your goal here? Well, your goal is to worship and gather other worshipers and grow those other worshipers up in Jesus. So when I became a Christian in 1970, every church that I knew of had a worship service at when? Some of you gray heads will know this. 11 a.m. You just had a worship service at 11 a.m. I mean, you just didn't not worship at 11 a.m. It had been done at 11 a.m. since Paul landed and, uh, you know, and no, I'm kidding. But it had been that way for a long time. So I read in a book one time why worship services were at 11 a.m. Do you know why they were? Does anybody know? I'm, why? No, football. No, no. It goes way back further than football. It was halfway between both milking times. Right? Have you ever been around a dairy farm? They milk real early and they start the evening milking about 3, 3.30 in the afternoon, right? And I thought, well, that might have been a good time in agricultural America, but for the people, we didn't have a dairy farmer in our church, right? So it might be that we need to continue to worship at 11 a.m., but not for that reason. Maybe if we worshiped at a different time, more people would come. Oh, pastor, we can't do that. Well, what's our goal? What's our goal? We want to gather and perfect the saints? Well, maybe we have a little flexibility about our worship time. Had a lady join our church one time, sweet lady. Um, she liked me, and, and, and I was so glad she joined our church. And she said to me as she joined, she said, Alan, I just love Faith Presbyterian Church. I love everything about it. I hope you'll never change a thing. And how did I respond? I was just crestfallen. Why? Why did that discourage me? Because I knew things were going to change. I knew she would be unhappy at some time in the future. I didn't know what we would change. I mean, I didn't have a list in my pocket I could pull out and say, hey, we're going to change these things, Lisa. But I knew things would change. They just do. And if, and if, if, if everything, if I like everything about the church as it is, so much so that nothing can be changed, you're going to be a grumpy church member someday. Call me a prophet? <laughs> I'm just telling you, someday you'll be a grumpy church member. Uh, somebody will say, well, let's worship at 1030 or 930, or let's worship at another time. Or somebody will say, let's change this or change that. What enables a church to make transitions? Common Purpose, common vision, common mission. I could illustrate that so many different ways. Our goal is to produce a beautiful bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 9, to see us as fellow workers, as God's fellow workers. Um, he says in verses 16 and 17, see uh, the value of God's church. I think that's why he Again, six, verses 16 and 17 could look like a misfit uh, in this uh, context, 
Do you not know that you're God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. You are that temple. And so I think he's saying what? That, that they've got to see what the church is. Uh, who, are the, who is the church? Who are we? Well, we're saints. We're God's field, God's building. We're God's temple. We're a dwelling place of God's spirit. And so we're precious to God and we're protected by God and we're provided for by God. And why is that so important? Well, it's important because identity, who we see ourselves as, has a direct, a direct impact on how we live and how we conduct ourselves. And so he's wanting to see them that they are the temple of the living God so that they'll live like the temple of the living God and quit quarreling and fighting with one another. He says, see us as stewards of the mysteries of God. What are the mysteries of God? The mysteries of God are those things, at least historically speaking, the church has always interpreted the mysteries of God as the things that you cannot find out about God without the Scriptures. You cannot find them out. I can tell you the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth His handiwork. That is natural revelation tells me there is a God. He's a powerful God and certain things about Him. He's a beautiful God because the world He's made is a beautiful world. But I can't look at the stars and see the incarnation that God became man. I can't look at the stars, the heavens and the earth and see that Jesus lived for us and died for us. I can't find the resurrection except in the Bible. I can't find the ascension into heaven except in the Bible. I can't find out the, the pouring out of the Spirit of God except in the Bible. I can't find that Jesus came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance except in the Bible. We're stewards, he says of the mysteries of God. And we've got to be found faithful or trustworthy in verse 2 of chapter 4. So, let me draw a few concluding comments and I'm going to use Paul's exhortations uh, that I have, uh, some I've spoken about, some I have not. In chapter 3, verse 18, let no one deceive himself. Let no one deceive himself about what a minister is, or how to think of church workers or servants. Let no one deceive himself about how a church is built. It's built by God. The true church cannot be built upon people and personalities. Indeed, I'm bold to say this. To the extent that a church is built upon people and personalities... To that extent, it is not the church that God desires. And I know that's a pretty strong statement, but I believe the Scriptures will bear it out. First exhortation, let no one deceive himself. Second exhortation, let no one boast in men. We've already talked about this. Chapter 3, verse 21. Don't boast in Paul, don't boast in Apollos, don't boast in Cephas. If I was at Evergreen today, I'd say don't boast in Nathan Lewis and don't boast in Adam Parker. If I was back in my home church, I would say don't boast in Alan Carter or don't boast in Jason Sterling. In this church, I would say don't boast in E.C. Bell or whoever's to come. Don't boast in men. 
All things are yours, you're Christ, and Christ is God. Now, pastors need to teach churches how to view ministers. That's what Paul is doing in this passage, right? And that's what I'm trying to help you to see. What will it take for a pastor to tell you the truth that he's a nothing and that God is everything? They will have to drink deeply at the well of the gospel and know that their identity as a minister is not tied up with the size of their congregation, the wealth of their congregation, the buildings of their congregation. They must get their identity directly from their relationship with Jesus Christ and their calling as a minister of Christ, or they will never approach pastoring as they should. You encourage EC that way. You encourage your new pastor that way to draw their identity from Christ. Now, I want to tell a story to conclude. Suppose you're a soldier in 1944 and that your unit is landing on Omaha Beach on June the 6th. Suppose further that your commanding officer is killed during the landing or lost in the confusion and a replacement is named. For those of you who watch Band of Brothers, that's kind of what happened to Dick Winters, you know. He became a CO on D-Day. What do you do if your commanding officer is for some reason taken out of the picture? Do you stop fighting? Do you just say, well, we've got to stay here on the beach? You don't do that. There's an MG-42 spewing 1,200 rounds a minute down at you. You don't stop trying to get up and get off the beach and go up the cliffs and take the positions of the enemy. You don't stop trying to prevail against the enemy. Though pastors are not commanding officers, that's Jesus' role, there are some similarities because there is a mission, there is a job to be done They are to gather and perfect the saints for the glory of God, not their own glory. Your situation is somewhat similar to that. Uh, Your leader, your pastor, is going to be called to something else. And you'll have a new CO, so to speak. You don't stop your mission. You continue your mission. Some of the military historians will tell you that one of the differences between the Allied armies and the German armies was that when a German commanding officer was absent or killed, the troops under them did not know very well what to do or how to adjust. They were sometimes too tied to their one officer to carry out their mission in his absence or too slow to adapt. That can be the case when there's a change of pastors. I pray that it will not be the case here because pastors are only servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. One of the best ways to discourage a departing pastor or to discourage an incoming pastor, if he's a good one, is to act like it depends on him and not on God who gives the growth. To act like the church can be or was built on him and not on God. That's what Paul is writing to correct. 
And may it be so with all of you here at CVP. Let's pray together. Lord our God, I pray that you would be with Jalem Valley PCA in these next months as they move forward in their current situation. There will be a change of pastors, a change of leaders, and that will be very uh, unsettling for many of the sheep here. But Lord, you will not leave, and you are the great shepherd of the sheep. You are out for your glory in this church more than EC or anybody else here because you bled out your only son for this church. I pray that beyond what they could ask, think, or imagine, that you would bless them, care for them, and carry them through this transition with glory. Glory in such a way that they look back and you are exalted as as the great God is the Lord of the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.